Well, let's pray this morning, and then we'll study a little bit together, and uh, let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we're thankful today for the opportunity we have to come and study your word. We ask a blessing on our time together, and we come in Christ's name. Amen. So, the Bible, should we believe it? Can we trust it? This is the first of the eight-part series <clears throat> that <clears throat> excuse me harkens from Revelation chapter 1 or comes from Revelation chapter 1 and you might want to turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 1 and look at verse 1 through 4 Revelation chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 <clears> hmm <throat> I have it on the screen, or you can look at it in your Bible. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which shortly must take place. And he sat and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness of the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads, those who hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written in it, For the time is near. So the focus in these first four verses is what? Um, This revelation of God to John called the Word of God, right? And those who read, those who hear, those who keep these things that are written in it have a special blessing. So the Word of God or the Scriptures are the first doctrine alluded to in this final book of the Bible, Uh, the book of Revelation. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So all scripture or all the Bible is inspired. Of course, Timothy was writing in the New Testament, speaking of the Old Testament, right? And... um, Jesus also spoke of the Old Testament scriptures. Speaking to two very discouraged disciples on the road to Emmaus one day, he said to them, after listening to their reasoning, O fools and slow of heart to believe in that all that the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things to enter into his glory? So there was a prophecy that he would suffer, that he would die on the cross. They seem to have missed that or not heard that. And beginning at Moses, that would be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and all the prophets, all the major and minor prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So if you're trying to ask what books in the Bible are inspired, and you ask Jesus, he would have started with Moses, the prophets, and all the scriptures, the things concerning himself, right? So this is how we know what we should be listening to, Jesus himself tells us to look at Moses, the prophets, and all the scriptures. So the prophets, the books of Moses, all the scriptures, Jesus in the Old Testament tells us exactly what the Bible is, what we should be listening to in terms of the words of scripture. Now Paul gives a warning, however. He says, we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus and by our gathering together 
unto him that you not be soon shaken in mind or troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter, as if as from us that the day of Christ had already come. So Paul, in looking at now these New Testament letters and the other things coming up, he says, look, there are some letters out there, there are some words out there that are not from us. They are not to be listened to. And uh, so we need to figure out what we should listen to in terms of the New Testament. And interestingly enough, the last of the apostles to pass away was John. His death is about 96 A.D. or 100 A.D. And in his closing days, according to Eusebius here, who was writing in the 3rd century, he cooperated in the collecting and forming of those writings we call the New Testament. So you have the Apostle John. Actually, this summer when I was traveling over um, in Turkey, we went, to, um, uh, we went to Smyrna. And John retired in uh, Ephesus, and he sent a, a letter to Polycarp in Smyrna, uh, talking to him about what the uh, what to receive in terms of valid scripture. So you have the last of the apostles. John was the one that put together the writings that we have in the New Testament. So it's an apostle that's looking over. It's an eyewitness of the Lord that actually was deciding that. It was not the Vatican. It was not some other group. It was not a church council. It was the apostles themselves that decided what was in the Bible. How many think that's important to remember? Because if you are thinking that some group of men came together that were not inspired to pull together the writings of the New Testament, then you're dependent on man to tell you, you know, what the scriptures are, etc. So this is why it's important to understand this. None of the authors of the books of the New Testament, made a direct quotation from any of the 15 books of the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha are so-called hidden books. They're in the Catholic Bibles. They're not in Protestant Bibles. They were in everybody's Bible to begin with, actually, in the Dark Ages, because they liked them as historical books. But none of the New Testament authors are quoting from, from these. Uh, and uh, you see these books, the Apocrypha, Judith, um, Ecclesiasticus, Baruch, um, some apocryphal parts from the book of Daniel, Maccabees, etc. So the Catholic Bibles have the scripture plus the apocrypha in them. The Protestant Bibles have the scripture but no apocrypha in them. And we can see why now. I could go through the stories of the apocrypha and you would begin to see that they're a little bit different than uh, what you would find in the Bible. In fact, some of them are, are downright hilarious. In my... Uh, uh, in my classes when I'm teaching more in depth on this, we actually read the stories and look at some of them so that people can see the difference. But why was it that this happened? Well, why did they, how did they get um, confused? Well, first of all, when they were in the Bible, just as historical books, there was a heading that said they were historical books, but that was taken out. And then um, the Catholics began to say they were authoritative. During the Protestant Reformation, of course, everything in the Bible was hyper-scrutinized again, back to the original languages, and back to why they should be there or not be there. And they, they then decided, wait a minute, these should not be here um, in the Bible. And why would the Catholics want to keep them, however, in the Bible? Um, well, there was a dispute over the doctrines of purgatory, the efficacy of prayers, masses for the dead. 
And these things can be supported by the apocryphal book of Maccabees. And um, this was looked to as scriptural warrant for preaching the doctrine of purgatory, which is that when you die, you go somewhere, you, get, you suffer until your, your relatives and others pray you out or pay you out or whatever they need to do. Um, and then masses said for the dead so that they can move you out of that um, to heaven. And so the power of also good works. Tobit 12.2, Ecclesiastes 3, Edris 8, speak of the possibility of achieving merit for our, by our good works. And that treasury of merit then is cast in to move us from purgatory to heaven. Of course, this is not anywhere in the Bible, but it is in the Apocrypha. Can you begin to see why it is they like the Apocrypha? They want the Apocrypha there. Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the door of Wittenberg Cathedral in Germany, speaking against these things because there were people like John Tetzel who was selling papal indulgences who had a nice line, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from Purgatory Springs. This raised all kinds of money to, uh, to um, <laughs> build the Vatican, um, actually the Sistine Chapel, and these things were being built at that time. And so they were raising all kinds of money based on this doctrine of Purgatory, etc. But this is the reason the Protestants, those protesting within the Catholic Church, by the way, these were all Catholics who were protesting. These Protestants said, no, when we're looking at the Bible, we need to keep the Apocrypha out. And the Puritans, wanting to purify things, as their name indicates, felt uneasy that there should be any books included within the covers of the Bible besides those that they regarded as authoritative. The early copies of the English Bible excluded the Apocrypha, like the Geneva Bible, and then later on, of course, the uh, other Bibles as well. Um, the American Bible Society, following this lead, all Protestant Bibles included them, that is the Apocryphal books up to 1837, when the British and Foreign Bible Society forbade its circulation of these uncanonical books and the American Bible Society Stoom came to the same conclusion. So this gives you a little idea of the Bible. Is it important to know these things? Many times, um, you know, the Bible is called into to question, and some of these things come up. Now, there's a great book that I'd recommend to you. In fact, I'm trying to get some additional copies to be in our bookstore here, but you can find this online uh, in a Kindle version. Can We Still Believe the Bible, and Does It Really Matter? by Brian Ball. Good Book. I'm going to summarize a couple of things from that book. For, for most of the past 2,000 years, most people in the Western world have believed that the Bible is true. Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, Henry VIII, James I, Elizabeth I, Queen Victoria, Elizabeth Fry, Florence Nightingale, Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, Shakespeare, John Milton. All these people believe the Bible was true. They would never even have had that as a question. Sir Isaac Newton. These are science, pivotal science founders. And uh, Sir Robert Boyle, I think he was involved in chemistry. And then Handel and Wordsworth, uh, the musician George Friedrich Hollenwell, and then, the, then uh, the poet Wordsworth, Tennyson, Bacon, Longfellow, Gladstone, Louis Stevenson, Robert Louis Stevenson, should be on one line there, 
Lord Shaftesbury and Lord Macaulay all believed. They, they would have been shocked if someone said they didn't believe. And these were seminal thinkers that actually still influence us today. They set the trajectory for many of the uh, fields and disciplines of study that we have today. Sir Frederick Kenyon, uh, speaking uh, a century ago, it cannot be too strongly assured that in substance the text of the Bible is certain. This can be said of no other ancient book in the world. The Christian can take the whole Bible in his hand and say without fear of hesitation that he holds in it the true word of God, handed down without essential loss from generation to generation throughout the centuries. And of course, the Dead Sea Scrolls and their discovery actually underlined this. I'm not going to go into that today, but I, I could. <laughs> Maybe I should, but I'm not going to today. Now, seven reasons as we're looking at this this morning, the, the, the Bible matters. Number one, the Bible claims to be the Word of God. And again and again, uh, it claims it's, it's the source of information about Jesus. It contains relevance to life. It changes lives. It talks of the possibility of life to come. It's the basis of Western culture and science. And it's a book that offers hope. Let's look at these now more slowly. Number one, the Bible claims to be the Word of God. Revelation 1, verse 2, we just read it. Um, we talked about, it talks about the Word of God, right? And um, Genesis 1, God said, let there be light. In Revelation 22, it's the Word of God. So from Genesis to Revelation, there's again and again the idea that this is the Word, not of man, but the Word of who? Word of God. Um, I have put my words in your mouth. So holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. You have the word of God. This is what the Lord says. In other words, what the Bible claims, that there is a God, he exists, and he is in control. How many think that's good news? And the whole idea is that he didn't just state it himself, he texted you. He gave you the Bible text. Right? This is better than you're texting one another. This is actually from God. This is his, his Twitter feed. This is his uh, actually direct communication. And how many think we need a voice these days from above? Not a voice from across the aisle, not a voice among ourselves, but a voice from God. That's the whole idea. So number one, the Bible claims to be the word of God. Um, when we want to convey something that goes beyond the ordinary, we need language that does the same, transcending our everyday speech. If the Word of God can seem a bit over our heads, perhaps it's supposed to be. Elevated is what God is. It's part of His very nature, says one of the English royals not so long ago. Number two, it is the source of information about Jesus. You don't get um, information about Jesus from any other, many other sources, only four times in ancient literature, but the major bulk of information about Jesus, perhaps the most influential and famous person ever to live, comes from the Bible. Uh, he searched the scriptures daily, and they are they which testify of me, John 5, 39. More is written about Jesus than any other per person in history that's been more written about him. He's more influential. More music has been inspired by him than by anyone else. More great architecture and sculpture has been created to honor him than any other person. He has been the inscription for many of the world's great social reforms, or inspiration rather. And he has stamped his name on time itself, B.C. A.D. So Jesus, the most influential person, is largely, in fact, 
primarily, except for just a few incidents outside, is covered in the pages of Scripture, both foretold and then documented in the New Testament. So if you want to deal with the reality of who the most influential person is and get the facts on that person, the place to go is the Bible. And this all happened because of the Bible. This is why people know about Jesus, because of the Bible. Apart from the three or four brief references to Jesus in early Jewish and Roman literature, this do a little more than confirm his existence. The only source of information about this incredibly influential, enduring person is the Bible. And to believe that a remote imposter in a forgotten province of a perished empire stamped himself so deeply on time as to compel the centuries to hear his name is to believe that a child with its box of colors could change the tent of the ocean. <laughs> so in other words, Jesus who's basically talked about in the Bible, has had a profound influence. And we don't know anything about it except for the Bible. Okay, number three, it's continued revel relevance to life. So the Bible is important because of its relevance to life, profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and right righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished and equipped. For centuries, millions have discovered that the Bible speaks to their present condition. It gives hope in times of discouragement. You know, one of my favorite chapters, if I was studying just a chapter today on the Bible, and I had just one chapter to study with somebody, I would go to Luke 24. And Luke 24 talks about how Jesus was on the road to Emmaus and he saw two of his disciples. Um, this was after his death. He had not yet been resurrected to their knowledge. He was resurrected, but they didn't know about it yet. And he's walking along with them and he says, why are you looking sad? And why are you having this talk? Why are you discouraged? And then they said, haven't you heard what happened? He goes, well, what happened? And then they told him what happened. And then he said, hmm. Oh, you fools and slow of heart not to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And in the beginning of Moses and the prophets and the rest of the scriptures, he expounded or explained to them all these things, right? So he, that's basically a Bible study about a Bible study. And uh, so it gives hope in times of discouragement. It gives guidance in times of perplexity. Um, like, for instance, you know, now we have wars and we have rumors of wars and we have ethnic group rising against ethnic group. That's happening in the world today. But it's happening almost every day. But today especially, you know, we, we're, we're hearing about Russia and we're hearing about the former uh, areas of the Soviet Union that they're trying to annex back or different things, the Ukraine. Look, all that stuff is talked about in the Bible, okay? Not specifically the Ukraine perhaps or Russia, but it's saying there would be ethnic group against ethnic group there would be wars and rumors of wars. In fact, in that list in Matthew chapter 24, which I'm going to consider later today in another message, in that list, it's very interesting, all the major complaints that people have about God, why they don't trust Him or believe in Him, He actually foretold those things were going to happen. So the very things they criticize are actually already foretold in the Bible. And sometimes we're down on what we're not up on. It gives us light in the times of darkness is the point. It gives us confidence in times of uh, of low self-esteem when we're depressed. One of my favorite passages for depression in the Bible is Psalm 77. It talks about how you get down, how you get down very low, and then it tells you how to get out of it. 
So it gives us wonderful insight. Maybe this is why it's still a bestseller. In fact, the bestseller of all time. Number four, its ability to change lives, to give life a sense of purpose, to redirect life, to be reborn, to be changed, to be born again through the living, enduring Word of God. This has happened in my life. The Bible saved my life. And um, you talk to people, they'll tell you that. You can have a new heart. You can have a new spirit put within you, and God can do that. That's what the Bible claims. It's a great book of hope. If the Bible can change people, shouldn't we be interested in taking it seriously? And when we see people's lives changed by the Bible, which we do many, many, many millions of times every year, that's a miracle, and it comes from the living Word of God. Number five, the Bible says there's a possibility of life to come. How many think that's good news? Life to come. Eternal life, everlasting life, being raised up at the last day, living forever, the resurrection, the age to come, a heavenly country, a new heavens and a new earth. This is what the Bible talks about. Um, he who believes in me will live even though he dies. And because I live, you also will live. This is core Christianity and it comes directly from the Bible. Um, gambling. You can maybe have possible returns. It's a gamble, though. But the Bible offers eternal life, and there's absolutely no gamble to it. There's no risk. It's true. Whether the Bible is true or not, I guess, really does matter if that's true. Now, this is an interesting one. The Bible is basically the basis of Western culture. The authorized version of the Bible was a landmark in the history of English language, and its influence has been incalculable. Look, every single day you're using phrases from the Bible in, the, in, in, in this culture. Well, there was an interesting, um, and this is the Oxford professor, Alistair McGrath. This is a, there was an interesting poem on the anniversary of the King James Version, 1611 to 2011. I was in actually London being asked to speak about the, the Bible at that time at a conference, and I found this poem. Uh, it was a poem. I just took the words out from the poem. I just took the poem part out, but... In this poem, this guy goes through how the English language is influenced by the Bible. These are the words, these are phrases from the King James Bible that you say many times. God forbid, the powers that be, begetting, put words in our mouth, turn the world upside down, a sign of the times, sing its praises, shout from the rooftops, miserable comforters, do this in remembrance, like a fiery dart, I made haste, fell by the wayside, cut to the heart, in the beginning, how the mighty have fallen, put to shame, this labor of love, Worldly care, my cross to bear, wash my hands, scapegoat, peace offering, the years of plenty, I counted the cost, I girded my loins, I bitten the dust, I put my house in order, needs be, like a lamb to the slaughter, water from wine, thorn in my flesh, woe is me, weeping and wailing, gnashing of teeth, I got carried away, knew not what I did, a task that was mastered, a bottomless pit beside myself, a drop in the bucket, a beast of burden, grievously born, Shelter from the storm, find what I did seek. The spirit was willing, the flesh was weak. It is written, pride goeth before a fall. The writing was on the wall. I'm at my wit's end. All these things from the Bible. The time was short. My days are numbered. This is a stumbling block. The kingdom of God may come with great power. My grapes have become decidedly sour. Sweat of my brow. He that has ears, let him in. 
here. There's a time for everything, a millstone around your neck. Fight the good fight, 40 days and 40 nights. The vanity of vanities, no rest for the wicked. That sackcloth and asses and laughs of scorn. High heaven, I'd never been born. I was stiff-necked, hard-hearted, feet of clay, judgment day. Gave up the ghost, heavenly host. Let there be light in the twinkling of an eye, like a thief in the night, rode to Damascus, burning bush, doubting Thomas. Behold the man, the word became flesh, one and the same, tender mercies, cast out fears, be of good cheer, suffer fools gladly, passeth your own understanding, brokenhearted, a man after my own heart. Dearly beloved, speak in tongues, the truth set me free. Hallelujah, amen, out of the mouth of babes, born again, fruitful and multiplied, the Lord is my helper, my cup runneth over. O oh, me of little faith, I didn't fall short. What my God hath wrought by the skin of my teeth, gone the extra mile, long live the king. Thank God, sow the seed. Verily, verily, we say unto thee. That's just a few of the idioms from the Bible. You can't even speak English without the Bible. The Bible has, been the, has formed English literature and the culture of Western civilization to attempt to understand literature, politics, art, social history of England, English-speaking world, past 400 years without the knowledge of the Bible is to be crippled. So if you don't want to be crippled, <laughs> read the Bible. So seven reasons continue. It's the basis for Western civilization. The essence of this culture is freedom, individual freedom, freedom of speech, freedom to choose our work, our marriage companion, how many children we want to have. Most of these freedoms came into being in the Western world in the 16th, 17th centuries as a result of the Reformation, which was studying what? The Bible. King James Bible is a Magna Carta for the poor and oppressed, the most democratic book in the world. So the foundation of freedoms actually comes from a study of Scripture. Now, many people say, well, look, I used to believe in the Bible, now I believe in science. In fact, scientists are more trusted than even the military, and religious leaders are number three, then the news media, and of course elected officials are always at the bottom. So these, uh, these are the trusted, supposed bastions of trust. However, uh, <laughs> there's a little something you should know. There would not be any science without religion and none without the Bible whatsoever. Um, that's according to those who study science. And the Bible, its contents, controversies, it generated varying fortunes, Authority, and most importantly, the new way in which it was read by Protestants played a central role in the emergence of natural science in the 17th century. It was actually study of chapters like Daniel 1, chapters like Psalm 19, chapters that told about how the oxen of no <laughs> uh, credible reason just followed the ark rather than their mothers <coughs> and the, all the miraculous signs and different things. These things put in the mind the idea of how to test things out. Let's test it out. Let's see if the oxen follow or not. Let's have a test. Let's have a 10-day test. Let's see how uh, this happens across the universe. All this whole paradigm of how to ask questions and then replicate studies comes from the Bible. And it predated Bacon, who put it into formula by 1,200 years. Um, Hindu, Chinese, Mayan, Egyptian, Babylonian, Greek cultures all ha had in varying degrees starts in science that ended in stillbirth. Why? Because they just kept creating gods when they didn't understand something. This is why they have a plethora of gods, millions of gods. 
But instead, uh, it was only in the monotheistic religion that gave birth to the Bible that you had science develop. The concept of an orderly world as deduced from the rational and consistent God of the Bible provided a basis for belief in cause and effect concept of science. The pagan gods of other cultures were capricious and this does not fit with the consistency of science and that's why they never originated science and that's why they always come to study in America even now and that's why in America most scientific um, papers are published in America more than any other country in the world. And the United Kingdom is like in the top three. All Christian nations are now the generators of science and still are the maintainers of science. And um, that's just a matter of fact. And people that used to fight against it, maybe that listened to supposedly the Enlightenment or supposedly the secularized critique of scriptures saying you couldn't trust them, um, as they get into it, they start to see something different. This is Ellis, who was one of the founders of cognitive behavioral therapy. He maintained originally that religious belief was essentially synonymous with emotional disturbance. And there was a direct and linear relationship between the degree of orthodoxy and disturbance. So in other words, the more you believe the Bible, the more crazy you are. But he then began to actually work with people over time, and this is what he said. He now gives high regard to the fair view youthfulness of the Bible. He said, I think I can safely say that the Judeo-Christian Bible, notice he calls it Judeo-Christian, that's what I just told you, it's a Judeo-Christian culture. He says the Judeo-Christian Bible <clears throat> excuse me, is a self-help book that has probably enabled more people to make more extensive and intensive personality and behavioral change than all professional therapists combined. <laughs> I think that's a little bit of a switch. A little bit of a switch. <clears throat> so it's the basis of culture. And uh, the Bible preserves the tradition which we ignore at peril. Again, back to Prince Charles. It is part of the very architecture of our culture. It is always, I've always given a high priority to the spiritual roots of our society. I do believe that the survival of civilized values as we have inherited them from our ancestors depends on the corresponding survival in our hearts of that profound sense of the sacred. So, you know, some cultures <clears throat> have been attacked by other religions that are quite militant and attempt to bring in their culture. Back a few years ago when I was visiting in Scandinavia, and I'm on a board there of a ministry, so I usually would go every year for those meetings. But one time I went, I was kind of shocked. A new bestseller in Norway is the Bible. A secular nation turns to the religious reading the uh, Norwegian translation of the scriptures. And by the way, they had this translation and they, they uh, put erotic pictures and stuff in it to try and get people interested. And the reason they did that was because they said, look, we're losing our purpose and our focus as a culture. We don't know who we are anymore. And now we're being overtaken by these people taking advantage of our good graces. We need to have people start to read the Bible again so we can remember who we are. Number seven in our study here today of the Bible is it's a book that offers what? Hope. 
In the midst of the chaos, the Bible offers hope. The Lord Jesus, our hope, better hope, a living hope, a hope that abides, a steadfast hope, the assurance of hope, the glory of hope, the hope of the resurrection of the dead. The blessed hope. So the Bible is filled with what? Hope. So these are a summary of the things we learned. The Bible claims to be the word of God. It's the source of information about Jesus. It's relevant to life. It can change lives. It talks to the possibility of life to come. It's the basis of Western culture and of science. It's in a book that offers hope. How many think these are some good reasons, good reasons to um, reaffirm our confidence in scripture. And I would recommend this book, Can We Still Believe the Bible? I took a number of the thoughts today from today's talk from this. And I want you to remember that there's really, according to the Bible, only two things that last. One is God's word. And the second are people who accept God's word. Would you like to accept God's word and last forever? Just like his word does as well. Your words were found... and I ate them and your word was to me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart so perhaps that's our take home text today it's enough to hear about it's not enough just to hear about the Bible but eat the Bible Um, masticate on it think about it ruminate on it and it will be as it says in John 6, 63, my words are spirit and they are life. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you today that we can just be reminded of this first S of revelation. Blessed are those who hear the word, who, who keep it. And uh, we want to do that in our lives today. We thank you. We come in Christ's name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.